Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being alive. We thank you for our health at the moment, and we pray for our nation and for our world, that you would be present with us in a mighty way during this pandemic, that you would heal, save, and bless all those who are working to keep us safe and to heal those who are sick. Bless our study of scripture today, and we pray that we would emerge from today and from this class with a new vision of what it means to be your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today is an exciting day. You've been on a long journey, and we're going to finish off with the final book of Acts, chapter 28. Now, to give you just a little bit of a background, last week we recall that Paul was standing before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, before the rulers and the authorities, and he has appealed to the emperor. There was the famous line, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so Paul has now left Caesarea, and he is sailing for Rome. But alas, there is a storm at sea, a shipwreck, and by chance or by providence, he finds himself on the island of Malta. And so a, a good point before we even dive in is that um, God's story always takes a twist. Uh, and whenever we sail the ship, and um, that's not always where the ship lands, um, but God is always present behind the scenes. And so it's a really odd thing for this story to be unfolding and then you're kind of getting to the end and Paul's going to the emperor, but surprise, there's a shipwreck and everything's delayed for a couple months. And that's where we're going to end. And um, we can talk about that in a bit, but I think that there's not just some practical history there that's interesting, but some deep theological significance about God's story in general and about how it's not always linear. And we can kind of talk about the metaphorical <laughs> shipwrecks of our lives and the Maltas we end up on and what they all mean. But I'm going to go ahead and put that in the background and let's dive in. After we had reached safety, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And so again, you've missed the story of the shipwreck. So now they're safe on Malta. And notice the pronoun we. After we had reached safety, it's not after Paul had reached safety. This is now written in the first per person plural. And so this is where a lot of people speculate that this is the author of the book who has firsthand knowledge of these events because he spent a lot of time with Paul um, sailing on these adventures and was part of the apostolic journey. Now, some scholars would say that this was part of how ancient narratives were written, that you just write them in the first person plural. But uh, if you read the text carefully, they're not always written that way, that there is a back and forth between third person and first person plural. And so the majority of scholars, in my opinion, would say that this is the author of Acts speaking, or someone who was on the ship, or someone who can give a firsthand account of the events that are unfolding. So I don't want you to miss that pronoun we because it's very significant and gives us some insight into the potential author of this work. And so we, presumably the author of Acts and Paul, they show up on the island of Malta quite unplanned and the natives there show them unusual kindness. And 
that is unusual, right? Whenever people shipwreck on your island, you know, a lot of times you just kill them and that's that. But there is an unusual kindness being showed, which points here to the providence and the blessing and the covering of God, that God is protecting them on this journey. Uh, it's cold and it's rainy. And so there is a fire and everyone is welcomed around it. So there's a big reception and, you know, Paul's feeling pretty good about this warm reception. And Paul, like a good Boy Scout, is going to gather some kindling and brushwood to help the fire keep burning. Uh, and whenever he reaches down to pick up a few logs, there is a viper who's being driven out by the heat that fastens on Paul's hand and bites him. Now, the natives witness this, and they see this as a clear sign that Paul is cursed. And so they say, well, this man must be a murderer. Uh, and he has escaped from the sea. He's running away from the law and justice, fate, providence, God, justice will not allow him to live. And so that is their conclusion. And it was a natural conclusion to make in antiquity. You know, one of the things that we might just ask and hold for our conversation is, where is this worldview still around? Where do you see it? The modern equivalent of this is something bad has happened. Therefore, he, she, I, they must have sinned. And so obviously, like the most grotesque example of this would be Hurricane Katrina wipes out a significant portion of New Orleans. And then you have preachers on the next day saying that God is punishing them for their sins, right? That is an obvious example of this worldview. But I think that we can find it in smaller, more nuanced ways in our lives, the ways that this worldview is at work within us when we blame ourselves or we blame others when bad things happen. Uh, we see this a lot with COVID, right? Someone gets COVID and we say, well, they kind of deserved it, right? They weren't being safe enough, right? So there's this very subtle worldview that says that the bad things that happen to us are the direct result of justice. It's almost like karma. Uh, and so we can raise the question, do Christians believe in karma? Is justice what happens when life catches up with us? Where is that true? Where is it not? The other thing I want to note is this idea of the snake biting Paul. And we notice in verse five, he just shakes it off uh, and it goes into the fire, poor snake. That's unfortunate for the viper. Uh, but um, Paul suffers no harm. And they're expecting Paul to die because these are natives. They know these snakes, but Paul doesn't even suffer a headache or anything like that. And so all of a sudden they change their mind. Not only is he not a murderer, he must be a god. Clearly the people of Malta, you know, it's one or the other. Um, and they have shifted to the other side. Now, oddly, whenever someone in the book of Acts is worshiped as a god, right? Whenever Peter um, comes to the centurion Cornelius, Cornelius tries to worship him, and Peter says, stop doing that, I'm only a man. Uh, in a similar way, Paul is preaching to some pagans, and they see a great miracle. They all try to worship him. The priests of Zeus are trying to sacrifice goats, and, and everyone says, stop doing this, we are only mortals. Oddly enough, here, Luke doesn't waste time saying that Paul tried to stop them. We can assume that he did, but I think at this point, Luke's already told that story. But the point here is that the power of God is so present in these early apostles 
that this is now the third, fourth, maybe fifth time that someone has mistaken them for God himself. And the whole point of this is that people are amazed at the power and healing at work in the early church, that this is the only conclusion they can make. Another thing I just want to point out about this idea of the snake biting Paul and not being harmed is that there really seems to be a belief in the early church that this is part of what happens uh, when one is faithful to God. So if we read the longer ending of Mark, uh, Mark 10, 18, Mark says that the faithful will pick up snakes in their hands, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. So, you know, if you're faithful to God, you can pick up poisonous snakes and nothing's going to happen. In Luke 10, 19, we're told, I've given you authority to tread on snakes, and you'll have power over the enemy. And so I do think that maybe there was a myth in the early church or a belief because of this incident or other similar incidents, because poisonous snakes were all around, that Christians were somehow protected. We see some evidence of that in the text. But I think we can look at a deeper meaning. We can ask, well, where does the real snake show up in the Bible? And how does the snake bite us? And in what sense can Christians just shake this snake off? And, you know, it, it takes little imagination to go back to the book of Genesis where everything's hunky-dory, but who shows up? A snake. And how does that snake bite Adam and Eve? By encouraging them not to trust God. And so what is the real snake that we have been given victory over? Is it a poisonous viper? Maybe, but of course the real snake is the one alluded to in the book of Genesis. And so I want you to catch that nuance there. Um, now, this has happened. And so Publius, it's my favorite name in the Bible. And I often wonder when people are looking for new biblical names, why no one names their son Publius. Uh, but uh, he is a good man and he receives them and he gets out the nice champagne and they have a big party. Three days, we're told, in verse seven. But then Publius gets sick. Maybe he's hungover from the wine. Maybe he just, you know, catches a cold, but he has a bad fever and he is falling very, very ill. And people are very worried about their chief. And so Paul visits him, puts his hand on him and heals him. And then the rest of the people of the island who had diseases came to Paul to be cured. This very much mirrors the language of the Gospel of Luke, where people who had diseases and who were unclean came to Jesus to be cured. I mean, the, the Greek parallels very, very closely. And so part of what's being hinted at here in verse 9 is that the power at work in Jesus is now operative in the church, and that we also are to be a place where diseases are healed, and where people find some sort of cure. Now, we can have a conversation about what that means um, uh, when it comes to physical disease and how not everyone's cured. Certainly, we understand the emotional disease and the social disease and the psychological disease of our society and what it means for us to cure that. But the bottom line is, however we understand it, the church is now to be that body where the masses of people suffering from disease of some sort come to find new life and healing. Verse 11, three months later, we set sail um, from Malta. I mean, that's just amazing, right? Paul has appealed to the emperor. He gets shipwrecked. 
and they're stuck there for three months. Think about that, right? So this is not the day where you just buy a new airline ticket and, <laughs> you know, you throw a fit because your flight's delayed by eight hours. His flight was delayed by three months after a shipwreck. And so this gives you a little insight, I think, into the ancient world and what traveling was like and how difficult it was and how uncertain it was. Uh, I think that next time your travel plans get interrupted and you're really kind of throwing a pity party, just remember this conversation, get out Acts chapter 28 and think about being shipwrecked on Malta for three months where you're getting bitten by snakes and you have to fix the ship and you're delayed by three months. You can't text message anyone. You can't call them. You can't write a letter to them, right? Because no one's coming in and out. And so um, that's just a note, I think, about the difficulty of travel in the early world. So they finally are able to leave and um, they come to this other place and we're told in verse 13, uh, verse 14, that on um, the city of Putioli, I don't know if that's correct, but I'm going to go with Putioli. There we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days um, on their way to Rome. So this is really important because Paul was not the first apostle. He was not the only apostle. He did not find every Christian community. This is a good reminder that there is an explosion of missionary activity happening outside the book of Acts, right? They found believers planted by other churches, and they are welcomed. And so even though Paul was a well-known apostle, for instance, he wrote his letter to the Romans. Uh, he was planning to go to Rome en route to Spain. He had never met the Romans. He had never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church at Rome. But because he was so well known as an apostle, he wrote to them. Uh, and so this is just a good reminder that uh, there were other Christian communities that Paul did not found, and that the vast majority of them were planted by someone we have never heard of, who started their work long before Paul started his. Um, and so they stay there for seven days, and we're told that Paul thanked God and took courage. And I always like to highlight this first because for me, this is one of the goals of the Christian community. Um, how do you know if St. Michael's is working for you? Well, for the most part, for the most part, over time, are you growing in a life of gratitude, right? Thanking God. And are you at least deepening your capacity for courage? I don't mean that you become like Paul where you hop on a ship, but in the small moments of life, do you find yourself maybe a little bit more courageous? Those are two good markers, I think, for what Christian community should do for us. And then finally, verse 16, Paul makes it to Rome. He was allowed to live by himself with only one soldier guarding him. I think we talked about this last week that Paul did enjoy a considerable amount of freedom. And whenever he was in prison, it wasn't, um, you know, Rikers Jail in New York or something like that. This was a, a moderate form of house arrest and probably loosened by the fact that he was a Roman citizen. And so he was able to enjoy certain privileges that, you know, someone with less status would have been able to enjoy. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pause there and we'll talk about Publius and snakes and ships and Malta and shipwrecks and everything else you want to talk about before we look at the second half of this chapter.
When you go to Malta, they take you to a beach that they say is where uh, St. Paul was, and the crew, the ship people were washed ashore and they sell a whole bunch of snake souvenirs, none of which I bought, but you know, it's interesting to me that it's, it seems important to them to claim this beach. I mean, who the hell knows what beach it was when they say, this is where Paul came ashore. Here are these snakes, buy one yourself, you know, and so it's still a big deal on the island of Malta. That's, I, I can imagine that scene. And uh, your own mistake there, Jackie, is not actually buying a snake. You should have done that next time, buy a souvenir snake. <laughs> Well, the one thing about the, the snake, it made me think of Moses and putting the viper on the pole and whoever looks at this, you know, and gets bit will live, right, or die. Which one is it, John? I'm not sure. But I just remember the snake on the pole. Yeah, so the book of Numbers, um, probably not where we want to start for a doctrine of God <laughs> because of this story, right? So we don't want to read this as... Uh, theology of God's character, um, but um, the people are being disobedient, and so God, as a punishment, sends a bunch of poisonous snakes to bite them, but then he asks Moses to make a bronze pole uh, with a bronze snake statue, and anyone who looks upon the snake after having been bitten by a poisonous snake will be healed. So God sends both the plague and God sends the cure. But what's interesting is that in the Gospel of John, Jesus references this story. Does anyone remember the verse of what he says to reference the story in the book of Numbers? He says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so in the same way that the people look, at the lifted up statue and were thus healed from the plague, Jesus used that as a teaching moment to say, when I am lifted up, both referencing the cross and his resurrection, if you look at that, you will then be healed from the plague of sin and death. And so Jesus was trying to draw some connections between that story and numbers and his own salvific work. And Gail, I love that you reference that story because it was not on my mind whenever I prepared these notes. But it should have been because this whole image of snakes, you know, in the Bible and the archetype of snake, both positive and negative, I think it all kind of ties into this conversation. I, I don't think it's fair to say that Luke was thinking about this. I think Paul just got bit by a snake and he's trying to talk about how the power of God protected him. But I always think that there's something deeper happening in the text due to the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Barbara? There's uh, in line um, 11, um, they talk about the twin brothers um, as the figurehead on the ship. And, you know, I thought this is capitalized, you know, which twins? And, you know, I looked it up and it's, you know, two, two Greek, uh, two, two sons of, you know, uh, one of Zeus and one's of Leda, the moon goddess, and um, and apparently they were revered as saviors um, in all kinds of distress, um, especially as protectors of mariners. Um, 
and I, I found it curious that that was included here because um, you know we're, we're talking about Jesus as the Savior and so you know what's the role of including these Greek gods in the story it's a, it's a really good question and and this is where you know we often need to autocorrect when we start looking too deeply into the symbolism and the spiritual nature of the text okay. you know it's the same i always use this example but everyone says you know the gospel of john it says they caught 153 fish why do they say 153 and i'm like look john is full of imagery but i think they just caught 153 fish i think that like <laughs> this is one of those moments where john is just trying to tell us like this is a detail and because this chapter um, begins with we, we set sail, we got shipwrecked. Um, I, I really think this is where Luke is just doing history as you and I know history. Mm -hmm. And I've misspoke, they didn't repair their own ship. Uh, it says that in verse 11, this was an Alexandrian ship with the yeah. twin brothers as a figurehead. So this mm -hmm. was a ship available to them. And I really think, you know, we can look into the deeper meaning, but can you really see Paul, who's bent on going to Rome, being offered this ship with the pagan protector saying, sorry, you know, tear this down and put the Lord Jesus Christ at the helm, and then I'll get on board. Yeah. And I, yeah. I really think this is just one of those details where this was the ship. Okay. Yeah. That sounds good. Thank you. It is. All of this reads like a travel walk, and they're just talking about all, all the details. And then Castor and Pollux are, you know, Gemini, the constellation, the stars, so. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't just read like a travel log. It is a travel it is. log. Okay. And, um, and when I was preparing the syllabus for this, you'll notice that we really weighted the front end of Acts a lot heavier, and we've skipped a lot as we've gotten to the end. And a lot of it is because as you get closer to the end, you know, Luke does so much of his theology at the beginning with these stories of Cornelius and Saul's conversion, but he is also interested in just telling the story of how Paul got to Rome and how Christianity spread from Jerusalem west uh, to the heart of the empire. And so at some point he had to like, put down going deep into like Stephen stoning and Cornelius's conversion and basically pick up the pace and just get us to the end. And um, I think that you're feeling some of that in terms of how this text reads, because it reads a lot more like history than some of the other stories we've had, which is more about significant encounters where the details are a little bit fuzzier. So, um, one question I'd have is thinking about this in the context of our journey, right? Because we're not here. I mean, we could study history together, but that's not really what we do in Bible study. We do study the history, but we're not just here to enhance, you know, more circuits in our frontal neocortex. We're here for this to find its way into our heart and for us to see ourselves also as witnesses who are called to go to the ends of the earth and whatever that means for us. And so I'm wondering, where does this image of Paul having a clear plan? I'm leaving Caesarea, I'm gonna be in Rome in a week, and then I'm gonna to go to the emperor and be vindicated. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a horrible shipwreck and they're all scared they're gonna die. Paul's not if you read it, but everyone else is scared. 
And then by chance, they end up in Malta for three months. And then they set out on some other ship, you know, to make it to Rome. How does that resonate with your experience of life where you metaphorically set sail and, you know, the journey takes a twist you didn't expect. And, you know, does that resonate as like what life is actually like and what meaning do you make of it? We'll go Mary and Brent. Uh, yeah, I, I go it very easily. Um, for example, the three months wait, and as you remind us, they don't have cell phones. They don't have any kind of phones. I mean, um, I think they have more time to sit and be, and they're better at sitting and being than we are today. For me, the turning point was my my big heart attack long, long ago, because it just changes your priorities. And for me, that was something I wasn't planning on. It happened. I never doubted I wasn't coming through it, um, although I might have been a little crazy that way from what I hear from the doctors. But it did, but, but you know, I'm through it, and it just partly what it's taught me is to, uh, I, I call it practice patience, of, of heart um, stressors. For me, the worst is stress, not as much the diet. I have history, whatever. But um, so I practice, I call it practicing patience, which has to do with just sort of quieting down and not, not going full out. I, I hate to admit this. I don't speed in my car as much as I used to. I mean, I truly took steps to slow down. And um, by slowing down, you can think about things. Um, I'm an extrovert. I do think out loud, but I've allowed myself to sit with things better. Yeah, that's great. I love, I mean, that's a, that's a really good example. So thanks for sharing that. I could see how a, a big medical event like that would say, okay, I was going in this direction. It's time to, you know, steer the boat in a different direction. Yep. What about you? You're about to talk. Me? I think so. Weren't you? Yeah. It's interesting that my experience is similar to Mary's, what was perceived as a near death experience. I was on my way to church, 745 service. This was probably in late 2019. So nobody's on the road. I get up to the traffic light near, um, you know, that big hotel there. And I've got the green light and I'm in the left lane. Nobody's around. And all of a sudden this car comes out from the hotel straight at me <laughs> to, to hit me. And I caught the movement of that car as he was, I could see in his car, I could see him, just as he was getting ready to slam into the front of my car. And I'm going 60, he's probably at least 50. And I was able to swerve, and fortunately there was nobody in the right lane. And in that moment, I realized that um, one, I could have been, it was a moment. If, if, if I had miscalculated that moment, I probably would have been dead. And from that, I kind of developed this thankfulness for putting, for God, putting me where you want me. And when I have trouble seeing, seeing a plan or developing a plan, my prayer is, God, put me where you want me today. And I see that near accident experiences 
he put me where he wanted me by not having somebody, by me being able to divert and not, fortunately, not having somebody in that right-hand lane. So. Brett, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's a wonderful story. And I'm very grateful that you are here with us at the moment. Um, you know, I'm sure we all have had plans <laughs> for this whole yeah. year. And we're just like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Not going to go that way. No. Very, I mean, it couldn't be, yes. You know, you set sail at the beginning of 2020. You, you kind of have the direction you think you're going and you have the worst pandemic since the 1918, you know, Spanish flu. And um, we're still kind of not quite sure what it all means. And we're gathering in a different way. And, and here we are, you know, Malta here can be metaphorical um, COVID life whatever that means for you. It means something for all of us. None of us are living the way we did before the pandemic. Um, and so here we are. And I also love though, that if we're gonna kind of take that metaphor, um, the vipers that you get bit with during this time will not do you ultimate harm. Now, I know that depending on what that viper is for us, we have a different capacity to hear that, right? So if someone's lost a child or a spouse, or you've been disabled by COVID, that's probably not a pastoral sensitive thing for me to say. Even though it's theologically true in the long run that we do believe that God heals, uh, and I think people can come to that conclusion for themselves. Um, but if the, if the main thing has been extreme emotional and psychological difficulty and some financial hardship and things like that, but if we're here today, if we're here today, um, I think that there's a word of hope of like, yeah, this viper, it hurt. It bit me on the hand. But in time, you know, I'm going to hop on that ship and I'll be in Rome, you know, maybe by the end of 2021. We'll see. So, I mean, I, I do think that there's some hope, you know, in terms of that COVID metaphor because they don't stay on Malta forever. Okay, so part two, Paul arrives at Rome. Three days later, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they had examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we would like to hear from you what you think. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. After they had fixed a day to meet with Paul, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said and others refused to believe. So they disagreed with one another 
As they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to our ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will listen but never understand, and you will indeed look but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul lived there for two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All right, so Paul makes it to Rome. The first thing he does is call a meeting with all the Jewish leaders. And so we're back to a Jewish audience, not speaking to the people of Athens or to the Roman masses. And basically, he retells his story of how he got to Rome. And he says, I want to speak with you. And this is a very key verse, verse 20. Since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Again, the story of Christianity is the fulfillment of the story of Israel, and the hope of Israel is the hope of the world. The covenant God made with Abraham was not for a select group of people, but rather a select group of people was chosen so that the entire world might know God's blessing. And so there's a little bit of theology happening here, just reminding us that this new movement is the continuation of Israel's story. But again, Luke is trying to make clear to the Romans that this new movement, uh, verse 22, this sect that is being spoken against is actually the authentic continuation of God's covenant in the Old Testament. Now, whenever Paul wants to speak to the Jewish leaders in the synagogue, um, they want to hear from him. And uh, we're told that Christianity has a bad reputation in Rome amongst the Jews. Um, this sect is spoken against everywhere, but notice they call it a sect. Uh, this is not a different religion. They consider this a sect at this point within their own network, right? There's enough commonality to where they're like, oh, this is a rogue group of us, not someone else. This is us, but they've gone rogue. And so I want you to know that still within the Jewish um, world, Christians are seen as a sect from within that are becoming more and more um, not us, as opposed to some new Gentile movement that they don't care about. So in verse 23, we're told that all the Jewish leaders are coming to Paul in great numbers, and that day after day, you know, Paul is bearing witness to the kingdom and trying to convince them about Jesus using Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced and others refused to believe. That's verse 24. And that really brings to mind Luke 12, 51, where Jesus reminds us that, you know, he says, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to bring division. Even though Jesus and Paul and everyone is very clear that God's ultimate aim is to reconcile the whole world to God and all peoples to each other. Before we get to that, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya moment, um, the gospel does do some dividing. And um, I think that's a practical thing that happened in history. 
and something that many of the New Testament authors are trying to make sense of. And we see this consistently throughout the gospel and Acts. Some believe, some don't. Some are in, some are out. Some are curious, some are hardened. And it kind of raises the question, in which camp will you be? You who read this book, will you refuse to believe or will you listen to Moses and the prophets, right? So that's kind of the question behind everything. And then the book ends in what might seem on the surface a very strange way, but I actually think it's a very appropriate ending. Paul quotes Isaiah. And if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know that Paul is quoting the same thing that Jesus quotes in the Synoptic Gospels when people don't believe his word, that, you know, God sends a clear message of truth, but the people's hearts have grown dull and they are not understanding. And practically speaking, this is really kind of an important ending piece. Let this be known to you then, since you have rejected God's Messiah, this salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they're going to listen. Um, and, and so one of the things that Paul and the New Testament authors have to do is to tell the story of how the message could be preached to Israel first, but also be opened up to the Gentiles. Um, that's a really important thing that everyone has to do uh, in the New Testament, because the inclusion of the Gentiles in this movement uh, you know, we take it for granted, but it was so, so radical. And so um, Luke tells that story, you know, um, that the not full embrace from the Jewish community has led this being opened up to the Gentiles, which was God's plan all along. They will listen, Paul says. They will come in in great numbers, and the body of Christ is going to be forever changed. And in verse 30, we're just told that this whole thing ends with Paul living at his own expense. We're told in Galatians, he's a tent maker, and he is just welcoming those who come to him, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord without hindrance. And so he never gets his audience here before the emperor. Uh, we don't know if or when that happens. We do know from history that Paul was martyred. By tradition, he was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen, um, as opposed to crucified. But um, it ends with basically Paul made it to Rome, and now he's preaching the gospel. And, and really the question it raises, because it doesn't tie the whole thing up in a neat, tidy bow for us. The question is, well, what happens in Acts chapter 29, right? The book ends with 28, but what happens in the next chapter? And that is where your imagination and your life come into play. You know, basically the question is, how do you continue this story? You know, you've been brought on this journey. It's not just Paul who was shipwrecked. You've been shipwrecked. It's not just Paul who has his message rejected and received. Whenever you're authentic to your call, you're rejected and received. It's not just Paul who has to wrestle with these complex questions of how God's promise to Abraham and the Jews is now open to the world, you have to wrestle with these questions. And so the question is, how will your life, and really I think more fairly, our life as a church continue this story? Well, you, you mentioned chapter 29. Where's verse 29? Verse 29? Mm-hmm. 
of chapter 28? That's a really good question. And I just copied and pasted this from a Bible app and I don't know the answer to that. Well, I, I didn't know. I, I know it, it slept out of my. There, there's probably a good reason. I mean, if, you know, usually what the case is, I'm willing to bet, is that um, it's left out of most Bibles because, you know, these manuscripts will copy that someone kind of probably added a verse that's not in the earliest manuscripts and it's probably not included. That's my guess. What says in Malta or in Rome or does he just preach? Is he a Baptist? Yeah, so Paul <laughs> actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, when he talks about who he baptized. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius and Maybe I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know who I baptized. For God did not baptize, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so Paul didn't actually baptize a lot of people from his own account. Um, other people did that, and he just preached. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah, as you were talking about this, and when I read it, I don't think I went this way, but um, again, I'm back onto this things taking longer than, than they do now. And I think disagreement is actually a really good way to lead to learning. And I think of, as, as you were talking this time, what went in my mind is it's like, a, I'm one of five kids, five kids fight. We love each other, but we fight. And what often would happen is if we were fighting about a disagreement, my parents would say, okay, you go to your rooms and you think about it. And you thought about whatever that disagreement was. And that doesn't mean you come out changed, but often, you do when you settle down and get away from it. And that just hit me today as you're talking about it, but it also sort of, I can see it applying here. I mean, think about what's going on. That verse that's left out, it's the Jewish people leaving, arguing and not happy. Well, maybe they went away and if they thought about it, they might come to see it differently. They might not agree. Sort of like, um, was it last week? There was something about respect, and it was not that they necessarily agreed, but they honor, they respected where he came from. That's just what I'm thinking about right now. I think those are lovely, lovely. I mean, I I agree with it, and really, um, yeah, I think that's lovely. I agree. Other other thoughts about acts, um, and and you know, at this time we we've got about ten minutes left. This is our last time. We don't really have a what have you learned from Acts? And so why don't we pivot there? So congratulations, you've studied a large portion of the book of Acts in great depth. What do you get out of this? What's the meaning of this book? And, and you know, what, what do you take away from your time studying um, this significant book in the New Testament? Yeah. That they ran into a lot of Maltas, but they kept going. They ran into lots of challenges and hurdles and difficulties, but they kept going. And of course, so can we, right? We will keep going. You know, COVID-19 in the grand scheme of things will not be in the top 100 of the most difficult things that the church ever faces. And God's church has been very resilient over time. It takes a lot more than a pandemic to stop the church. Yeah. Well, one thing I think about is um, we've talked about Paul definitely learning through experience the suffering required in order to be a follower. And I think that that is what's sitting with me somewhat is I feel like in Acts, I, I learned more about 
what it means to be an apostle, what it means to be a disciple, how you do it. And it's huge. I mean, it's big and I don't want to take away from what I can or can't do, but I think it's, um, thank goodness for the gift of faith, which leads to hope and understanding that allows you to continue to move through, as Rhoda said, the many Maltas that we come across, because I do think we don't necessarily think of it as suffering, but I can now. I mean, just some of the things we've called out today, those are, those are stories. Those are things that we had to deal with and then carry on. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever Jesus comes to Paul, I must show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I don't want any of you to be left with the impression that God is sending suffering into your life or that God delights in suffering. I do want you to know that God is deeply resilient, loving, caring, and present in the midst of your suffering and that it's not to be wasted. You know, uh, we try to escape that suffering in our life. What if we turn to look at it a little bit more and ask God to somehow use it uh, as part of our journey? I think Acts invites us to at least wonder about that. What else do you take away from your reading of the Acts of the Apostles? I think even in the midst of all that suffering, uh, Paul is really thankful. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just, maybe this is the essence of what you're just saying, but... Um, Sometimes, you know, when you're suffering uh, with something that just seems intractable, <coughs> it's hard to feel thankful. Um, and he's kind of a little energizer bunny. He just goes and goes and, or a Bobo doll, you know, he keeps getting knocked down and boom, you know, he just pops right back up again. Yeah. You know, Barbara, um, I'm, I haven't read my sermon for, uh, Sunday, but and the readings are First Thessalonians and the Gospel of John, and the verse in First Thessalonians I'm playing with is where Paul says, um, give thanks to God in everything and in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Wow, right? Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you. What is the will of God for me? To learn to give thanks in all circumstances. You know, the more you think that, the more you're probably going to take your computer and smash it to the ground and piece it. <laughs> but that's a, that's a really beautiful, hard, true pill for us to swallow, I think. It really I like, is. It's, you know, it's sort of like, really? And, you know, you know, and why does that person seem to have sort of this, you know, easy road to, easy path to follow? Um, According to Acts, because they're not as lucky as you are. <laughs> I, I, I like I like that wonderful thought coupled with Brit's prayer. Yeah. Do with me what to do with today, and then I can come back and say thank you. Sort of like the Annie Lamott prayer. <laughs> help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> now that we've gotten to the end, is the is the beginning of of Acts with Pentecost and the Holy Spirit and being sent out to be witnesses. And here at the end, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors that, you know, we are to open our, our hearts, our minds and souls and, and share that with others. Mm, yeah. I'm also mindful um, about how God is gonna get God's way. 
you know, this was always about blessing the whole world. The moment that God called Abraham, it wasn't for Abraham or for his tribe, but it was always to bless and to save the whole world. And notice all the forces that tried to oppose the welcoming in of Gentiles, of non-Jews. But no one's going to stop God's purpose. And so you think about those people who aren't currently welcomed in or who feel lost or who feel on the outside or who, you know, are now the modern day Gentiles, completely outside the pale of God's saving grace and love according to traditional religious eyes. You know, I I don't know how it all shakes out in the end, but God is pretty resilient in getting God's way to make sure that all people uh, have an opportunity to experience the deep love and blessing and healing and salvation that the kingdom of God always brings. And it's never limited to a narrow group of people. And in our world, everyone, you know, seems to shout, it's limited. It's limited to our tribe. It's limited to our worldview. It's limited to our race. It's limited to our geography. But no, of course it's not limited. The book of Acts makes it very clear. You know, this whole thing is starting in Jerusalem and moving westward and expanding you know, throughout the whole universe. That's kind of the arc of the divine impulse, if you will. You have a book of the Bible. Well, I want to thank all of you for being part of this study, and let me close us in prayer, and then we'll go about our day. Gracious God, this has been a very interesting last few months, and we acknowledge that we have been shipwrecked in Malta for a season. But we're also hopeful that the vipers that bite us uh, will not do us any harm and that a ship is waiting to carry us to calmer times in the future. We thank you for the way that this book has spoken to us about who you are and given us hope for how we live our lives. I pray that all those who participate will experience a renewed sense of mission and will think about what it means for them to bear witness to your resurrection and the circumstances of their life. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your grace, and we acknowledge you as the giver of the gift at this time. It's to you that we say thank you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.